The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's to Second Peter chapter one, Second Peter chapter one, and this evening's message. I think you'll recognize will be somewhat complementary to what I had to say in the message this morning, especially as we get to parts here that concern uh, how we prove that we're saved, how do we know that we are actually believers in Jesus Christ. And this will be sort of an add-on, I think, in this sermon tonight, some of the things that I'll have to say uh, about lordship salvation and showing us that we do have to produce evidence that we are truly believers in Jesus Christ. Now, here in our lesson tonight, we're looking at the, the final lesson on Christian growth. And this will conclude our study in this part of the doctrine of sanctification. But we're not yet through with this great doctrine because we will take up another aspect of it in the next message. And I would start by saying that God is not content that you would stay at the basic bottom level of Christianity. Uh, you begin as a baby Christian, and all of us do. When, and when we first receive Christ, we come in as a baby Christian. And God does not want you to stay that way, because a growing baby is a healthy baby. And a baby that doesn't grow is an unhealthy baby. And the same thing is true of a physical child as it is of a spiritual child, that if you're not growing something, if you're not growing in your Christian life, something is very, very seriously wrong. Now, the key verses that set the course for Peter's discussion of the subject are in verses 2 and 3, in which he says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. And there the apostle tells us that the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ will cause growth. It will give a life of godliness, and that is our sanctification. All of that comes through the knowledge of Christ. Godliness will help to produce in you the assurance that you are truly a born-again child of God. So what is it that keeps you going? And what is it that motivates you? What bears helps you to bear up in times of difficulty? How do you know that you really are? Um, a child of God, when all kinds of troubles come into your life, how do you know that it's actually worth it? Well, Peter would tell us it comes through the knowledge of God and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we add graces that are spoken of in this scripture, then we are, and when we are molded into the image of Christ, that is the assurance that we really do know the Lord. Now this evening we're going to look at uh, the first or the final two parts, rather, of our outline that are found in verses 10 and 11. So if you'll look in verses 10 and 11, it says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence. Now, let me take you back to verse number 5. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Giving all diligence. So there we see the same command given by Peter two times. 
And the word means, diligence means, for, for us to make an effort to work hard at it. And the word emphasizes a very important point that God is not going to do this alone. That the work of sanctification in the believer's life is not something that God does alone. Now, I know that we are accustomed to saying that salvation from start to finish is all of God, that it's all for the glory of God, it's all the work of God, and that we don't have anything at all to do with our salvation. And that's true according to verse number 3, where it says it is by divine power, it's divine power that saves, it's divine power that shows us, it is divine power that has called us, it is divine power that works in us, and finally it is divine power that's going to glorify us. And so in that sense, salvation in us from start to finish, that is all the work of God. We don't have anything to do with that, that's all the work of God. It comes by God's power. But there is another sense in which... Uh, God has ordained that he works through us in order to accomplish his will in us. And he doesn't just tell you to just turn loose and just sit back and enjoy the ride as he takes you to heaven. Oh, there is a sanctifying process that must take place. And this is what's going to make you like Christ. And it's a process that will not happen without your cooperation. Well, this is a very critical doctrine. It's plainly taught in Scripture. And just a little bit later on, I'll show you how that it's booted out by something that people think sounds better and feels better, but it's actually harmful to the understanding of what God requires of us. And so in two places here, Peter says to be diligent, to make an effort. If you are to receive the assurance of your salvation, then you have to make an effort to make it sure. Salvation is of the Lord, but the assurance of it is God working in you to do what he wills. Now, as we, as we begin this evening, let me remind you of the road that we've already traveled. We've, we've been through first the indicators of growth. And these are the graces, seven graces that are mentioned in verses 5 through 7. And we are to be diligent to build upon the foundation of our faith by adding and maturing the virtues uh, in the virtues and graces, uh, or graces, I should say, of virtue and, and knowledge, of temperance and godliness, of brotherly kindness and charity. And those seven graces are fruit of the Spirit that give the evidence that we do truly belong to Christ. Now, wherever the Holy Spirit lives, he's always tidying up his house. The Holy Spirit always cleans his house. And this is why we don't believe that there's any such thing as carnal Christianity. A carnal Christian would be a contradiction. There, There is no confidence of salvation where there is carnality. Carnality would simply mean a perpetual state of uncleanness, and the Holy Spirit is not going to live in filth. The Spirit will not allow that. And so if there is no evidence of change, if there's no evidence of growth, there is then no evidence of saving faith. Now the evidence that God wants to be in you are these graces that we've talked about, and that is the assurance that He does actually live in you. Now the second part of our outline concerns the importance of growth. The growth is not only important, that, but it is essential. And when I mean essential, I mean it has to happen. Uh, there is no salvation if there isn't really some growth. Now, as struggling Christians, uh, Peter wrote to struggling Christians, and, and we have to throw out the idea that he considered them to be fake carnal Christians who never had credible professions of faith. Uh, to understand fake confessions, you need to read First John, where John explains that unbelievers will never stick. 
Unbelievers will always leave. They're not going to hang around for very long because eventually they're going to give up trying to live a life that they can't actually live. They're going to get tired of doing that. And so unbelievers are going to depart. And so I don't think that Peter is arguing here about a fake Christianity, but he has in mind God's people. He has in mind God's elect, those who have experienced a genuine conversion, but they're struggling to hold on. And they have a problem trying to hold on, and they're not sure at all if they actually are God's children because there are so many struggles and so many problems that are in their lives. And perhaps they had bought into the idea that so many people today, that they bought into the lie that there should be no struggle in the Christian life, that it should be easy, that it shouldn't be quite this way. But here Peter is dealing with the elect of God, those who are saved, and they are struggling Christians. Now, if you look at verse number 2, he speaks of grace and peace multiplied. And so he shows us that the importance of this, uh, of knowing Christ better, is for, our, is for multiplication. We talked about it last week. As growth takes place, as graces are added, peace is pulled along in that process. You can't add grace without encountering more peace. And so Peter says the assurance of your faith it will come as you grow and as you're diligent to add to your precious faith that God has given. Now, do you remember in the first lesson that we discussed the word obtained? Those that have obtained like precious faith. And I said that that's a word that means that faith was bestowed upon them. That God is the one who gave them the foundation to build upon. And so they were to take that foundation that God gave and to be diligent to use what he gave. Now, if you look at verse number 8, he said, If these things be in you and abound. Now, that's translated in other versions as, For if these qualities are yours. If these qualities are yours, you will not be barren. And that's a good translation. And it directs us to the ownership of the graces that these are yours. If you possess them, then assurance will also be yours. And if they are yours, then we find that there's also another important factor that grows out of that, and that is production. You will be fruitful. You will not be barren. You actually will have something to show for the association that you have with Christ. Barren is a word that means idle. You will not be idle. That means unproductive. So a Christian with these graces is not going to be inactive, but... We need to carefully consider that because if we see a Christian that is inactive, if we see one that barely produces enough spark to keep the engine running, then we know there isn't any virtue, there there isn't any knowledge, there is no patience. And that goes all the way through to the very last of the graces that are mentioned here. There won't be any love for others. There won't be any love for God out of which those graces can flow. And that's a very, very bad spot to be in. Now, if we know the Scriptures as we should then we recognize that there are some Christians that don't have these virtues. They don't have faith, the kind of faith that they ought to have. They don't have the love for God and the love for others that they should have. And that makes them spiritual dwarves. When you talk about growing, they are spiritual dwarves. And folks, that's not a sign that I want to hang around my neck. I want to be a Christian that grows and grows up for the glory of God. Now next, growth is important for memorization. Verse number 9, But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and have forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So if you don't grow in grace, that's an indicator that you have forgotten what Christ did for you. And you know what happens when you forget what Christ did for you? You'll fall back 
into the old sins that you lived in before. You'll go back to the old patterns of sin. Now, Paul had the same thing in mind when he spoke to the Corinthian church. They practiced some of the same sins that God had saved them out of. Some of them were terrible sins, and they even tolerated some of those things in the church. And so Paul wrote to them, he said, what are you thinking about? What's on your mind here? And he says, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so he reminds them, what are you doing? Here are reasons that you shouldn't return to your sins. You have been washed. You've been cleansed from your sins. You have been justified from those sins. And so how can you turn back to them? And that's the same problem posed here by Peter in verse number 9 of our text. Those that lack these things demonstrate that they don't understand or don't realize that they have been purged from their old sins. They don't understand that they have been washed or they forget that they've been washed and they've been sanctified. Now we look for a moment at the word purge. And purge is the same word from which we get catharsis. Purging is cleansing, it's purification. Now you think about that for just a minute. The word is actually a medical term. The purging in verse number 9 is a cathartic. But do you know what the word actually means? That originally... It referred to the Levitical rite of purification, to certain ceremonial washings that were performed as acts of worship in the Levitical system. And what those acts of worship did actually brought the person into fellowship with God or made them so they could come into the fellowship of God's people. Then over time, the word made its way into the medical profession in which it came to mean a purging of body toxins. And, and even of the cleansing of the bowels by taking a laxative. Cathartic is something that will cause your bowels to evacuate. Now, I don't want to be too crude and too graphic this evening, but sin is compared to some mighty nasty stuff. Now, if you've gone for a few days constipated, and you get stopped up, and then you take a laxative, well, you know what kind of stuff that you get rid of. I don't have to explain that to you. And that's actually the idea that's presented in this text, that if you don't add these graces, then you can soon forget all that nasty stuff that you got rid of, and it starts to come back again, and it starts to pile up again, and you go back to the same stuff that you were involved with before. And if you do that, how would you ever convince yourself or convince anyone else that you're actually a born-again child of God? You can't if you live in the same sins that you were in before. So it's important to add these graces because this means that you're moving forward on to perfection and that you're not digressing in your Christian life and going back to that old life of imperfection. Well, now we need to move on into verse number 10 where, we, where we're introduced to another of the Scripture's great doctrinal truths. And I keep saying these are critical points, but these are indeed critical doctrines. That adding graces is also important for stabilization. That's letter D, for stabilization. Wherefore the rather brethren, in verse 10, Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Well, that doesn't sound very much like what we of Baptists have been taught. Our doctrine says that we are eternally secure in our salvation. 
We, we never want to talk about falling away from our salvation. We're saved, and that's it. That's all that's said about it. We're saved, and that's it. We don't want to hear anything else. Salvation can never be lost. And then there's this thing here about calling and election. And, and many people aren't very happy about those doctrines. Uh, there, there are three doctrines here, actually, that do give people fits. And these three doctrines that are mentioned here are effectual calling and election. And then thirdly, there is the doctrine of perseverance. Now, that's not the order that Peter gives. This is not what he gives here, what I'm about to say. But we take election first. He doesn't deal with election first. But if we take it first and we uh, look at one objection to the doctrine, that I'm trying to understand this scripture, that, that if God has chosen people before the foundation of the world, he's decided who is going to be saved, then how could it be possible to make our election surer than it already is? Well, we can move that problem out of the way. It's not nearly as hard as the third part of this, which deals with perseverance. And so we can put calling and election together, as this text does, and we can say that we make our calling and election sure by the realization of it, by a better realization of it. Now, we can't make the reality of it any more sure, but we can make the realization of it more sure. We can recognize the, or we recognize the reality of it because there really isn't anything that we can do with an act of God that God did before we were ever born. We can't do anything about that. Uh, we can't ensure the act of our calling, which we talked about this morning, which is the working of the Holy Spirit as he works imperceptibly underneath our conscience. We can't really do anything about that. And so we consider that election and the effectual calling of God are two graces that are in within the purview of the sovereign nature, the sovereign work of God, so that they're monergistic. That means that God himself alone is the one who does these things. Now, the only way that you realize that you have been elected to salvation is the fact that you believe. And the only way that you realize that you have been called by the Holy Spirit is the fact that you do repent and believe. That's what we talked about this morning. You know these things by the effect of the Holy Spirit. You can't see it as it happens. You don't know as it's beginning to take place. But the Holy Spirit begins to work in the heart and he makes these things happen. And those are monergistic acts of God in which you don't do anything with them. So election then is known by the fact that you have believed. No one is saved unless they have been elected. And calling is much the same. We recognize that call because we have a desire to repent and to believe. And you would never do that unless God was already at work. So our calling and election are made sure by a faith, then, that is not a dead faith. It's a living faith. It's a faith that produces fruit. Or as James said, I'm going to show you that my faith is real because of the works that it produces. That's the same thing that we find here in verse number 8, which says that our faith will not be barren. So if those graces are in your life, then you know that you have been chosen by God. You know that you were called by Him. And I think that that's relatively easy to understand. That makes perfect sense that God would do it this way. And I don't really think that those, those should be points of contention among Christians. But when faith is demonstrated, that shows the believer is changed. His, his faith is working. And those facts are evidences of election to salvation and effectual calling. So that part's simple. But this next part throws us. Election before the foundation of the world is one of the most convincing proofs that 
we will reach our final glorification. In other words, that is a doctrine that seals final glorification. I, I don't think that you could find a better argument for the eternal preservation, eternal security of a believer than the fact that he's been elected by God. Now, God did that before we could do anything, so there isn't anything that you could do to change God's eternal purpose. And I hope that you do understand that. He called you according to his eternal purpose, which is to glorify him in heaven. And so how are you ever going to do anything that would defeat his purpose? How would you by anything that you do? So how then comes the end of verse number 10? And this becomes the perplexing thing for us. He says, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Well, we would say we can't fall anyway. We can't fall. So what difference does it make if we do these things? Well, that's perplexing because if you don't do these things, you will fall. So how are we going to reconcile election and effectual calling with the end of verse number 10? Well, I'll be honest with you. I could take the easy way out of this, and I could say, well, this only refers to assurance. That if you do these things, you will never fall away from your assurance. And that would be right. That would be a good answer. Assurance depends upon these graces, and if you don't have them, then you'll fall from the steadfastness of your assurance. But I don't think that I would be completely honest if I left it with that. And I said, well, I'm going to take the easy way out of it because I don't want to explain it. I think there's more meaning to these verses. Now, let's go back to election for just a moment. Make your calling and election sure, he says. And so we prove ourselves by good works. We prove that calling and election have happened. The evidence is produced. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. So salvation is made manifest and is made real or shown to be real by the works that we do. Now, at the last, last day, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and God's going to try our works to see what they're made of. And the right kind of works are going to survive that fire, and God will reward us for those good works. So these verses that we've just read are about assurance. Now there's, a, there's another interesting reference to this type of assurance in Isaiah chapter 22. And in Isaiah 22, 23, uh, God says that, he says, I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. A nail in a sure place. Now let me explain to you what he means by that. What this kind of nail is. This is not a nail that you drive into a wall after the house is built. Now if you come to my house, you'll see those kinds of nails. Because my wife is just mad about driving nails into the wall and hanging stuff on them. I mean, there are pictures of grandkids everywhere. And if I don't watch my wife, she'll drive nails into the refrigerator and into the, into the stove and into the dishwasher. I mean, anywhere she can, she's going to hang pictures of grandkids. But you'll also notice this, that sometimes those nails fall out. They can't hold very much weight, and so they get pulled out, and, and so they, they fall out. They aren't sure. But the nail that we see here in Isaiah is a different type because the houses in that time were not wood frame construction. 
And so you didn't drive a nail into the wall. No, they had stone houses, and to get a nail into the wall, it had to be done at the time of construction. And so what they would do is they would set a nail in the soft mortar joints as they were building the house, and then the mortar would harden around that nail, and then when the house was built, then the nail would be sure. You weren't going to be able to pull that nail out. And so you'd be able to hang anything that you wanted on the nail. Now, in Isaiah, what that pictures is steadfastness. And in that particular scripture, it refers to Eliakim that God had put into his place, and that place that God put him was sure because God was the one who put him there. And so he could not be removed. But if you go on reading in the passage, you'll find out that God removed another nail that wasn't so sure, one that thought that he was sure. And this was another man. His name was Shebna. And he was exalted to be an earthly king, but he wasn't exalted by the king of kings to be a king. Now, returning to the problem that we have in Second Peter, I could say that what all of this refers to is losing your assurance of salvation, and that would be the easy way out. But I think that we're talking about something else here, and I believe that what it speaks of is the absolute need of perseverance. Now, remember that I said earlier when I started the message that I kind of put it this way, I didn't use these exact words, but you should have got the idea that sanctification is not passive, that we have to work at it, that we do have a part in it. Now, believe it or not, as, as, uh, as much as many of our Baptist brethren preach sanctification, and well, they should, we, we do need to preach sanctification, and that's the subject I've been on for weeks. Although they do preach sanctification, they are not willing to push it all the way to the level of perseverance. And so what they will say is that we believe in preservation. We believe in eternal security. We do not believe that the scriptures require us to persevere. Because in their mind, perseverance means something that you must do in order to be saved. Now we wonder then, how, how would they reach that conclusion when the Bible has so much to say about perseverance? So are we to reject the doctrine of perseverance? Well, the reason that opponents of eternal security hate that doctrine so much, now when I say opponents of eternal security, I mean those who really do believe that you could lose your salvation. That salvation is not sure at all, that it's a day-to-day -day thing and you can lose it. Well, the reason that they hate the doctrine of eternal security is because they say that unless there is perseverance that's added to this, then a Christian could just go on living in a life of licentiousness and never worry about having to lose his salvation. That a Christian would just go on living in his sin and he would be safe and secure no matter what he did. And oddly enough, Baptists who don't believe that and who don't believe in perseverance fall into that very same trap when they preach non-lordship salvation. Because their alternative is to preach carnal Christianity. And in order to sustain the numbers of converts that never really show any change in their lives, any real fruits of repentance and faith, they latch on to this doctrine of carnal Christianity, which is antithetical to lordship salvation. But it's very interesting that in the historical creeds and confessions of Baptists, that none of the Baptist confessions reject what we call lordship salvation. All of them teach perseverance. And we would have to ask, well, why do they teach it? It seems like it's going the opposite direction of what we do actually believe. Why do they teach perseverance? They teach it because perseverance is the antidote to licentious living. 
Now, you may be starting to feel a little bit, maybe just a little bit uncomfortable with all of this. Because it sounds like that what I'm saying is that salvation is partly dependent upon our works after all. Well, let's think about that for just a moment. Let's consider what Jesus said in John 8, 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue, listen, if ye continue in my word, these are people that believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Or what he said in Matthew 10, 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Or as Paul says in Colossians 1, 21 to 23, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now, you really probably ought to circle these scriptures right here. Verse number 22 is a, is a verse that tells us that we absolutely do have to produce these good works, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. We absolutely do have to produce them because here is the goal of Christ in saving us. It is to present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. But then he goes on in verse number 23, and he says, If, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which we preach to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Or what do we do about Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer says, Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Those are just a few of the many verses that we find in Scripture that teach perseverance is required for salvation. And so the answer to our question then is yes, that God does require good works of a Christian in order to sustain him in the faith. Our sanctification is not monergistic. Our election and our calling are, but our sanctification is not. Now, I know that seems a little bit earth-shattering to us at first because works for salvation is just so antithetical to what we as Baptists believe. Well, I'm not here to, to, to create confusion in your mind. And so let me just settle your heart on this subject. We must persevere in the faith. You must keep the faith. You must not depart from the faith. That's very clearly evident from Scripture. But if that's all that I had to say about it, then what we would need to do is to adjust all of the doctrines that we believe about God's grace in order to accommodate that. So that's not all that I have to say about it. So what you really need to do is hear me out on this. Yes, we must persevere. The Scripture says you must work out your salvation. But the ability to do that is not yours. You must do it. But it's not in your ability to do it in your strength. If it was dependent upon you, then you would lose it before you ever begin. You would get saved in here, and then you would lose your salvation before you ever left the parking lot. So the question is, will you do good works? Will you persevere? Why will you keep the faith? Why will you do what God requires? Why will you do this so that you will not ever fall? Well, let me show you for just a minute how... Perseverance is coupled with salvation. We find it in some verses that we always quote. 
We take these verses as the gospel themselves. We never forget to use these. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, salvation is found in verses 8 and 9. Perseverance is in verse number 10. We are God's workmanship, and we are created and ordained to walk in good works. We will walk in good works. Now, if verse number 10 is not true, then neither are verses 8 and 9 true. What you can't do is pull out the doctrines of verses 8 and 9 and say that you believe them, but then take verse number 10 and say, I'm not going to believe that. Oh, these are things that work together. Why will you persevere? You must persevere because the Holy Spirit is in you. You can't fail to bear fruit because He's there. The Scripture says you have been ordained to good works. Just like He ordained your salvation, He ordained you to do good works. And so it is impossible for a Christian not to produce fruit. Now, it might be measured, it might be meager, but there will be fruit there. And if there is no fruit there, there is no salvation. Now, according to the Scriptures, the doctrine of carnal Christianity is not sustainable. If a person has responded to three points and said the sinner's prayer, and yet he never developed a heart for God, that person is not saved. It can't happen that way. And as far as I know, the idea of easy believism and of non-commitment salvation and non-lordship salvation that's taught by many of the Baptists does not find a source in Scripture. Oh, it finds its way to us in other ways. It finds our, its way to us by men like Charles Finney that I mentioned this morning. It found its way into Baptist doctrine by men like Dwight Moody. It has been handed down to us by men like Jack Hiles and some of the others that are in the independent fundamental Baptist movement. Now, what we do rejoice in is those groups, those Baptist groups, who teach the way of salvation, who are honest about this, and teach what a person must believe in order to be saved, that they do teach repentance and faith, they win souls to Jesus Christ. That is a wonderful thing. But you're not going to be able to do those things in the right way by rejecting what the Bible has to say about lordship salvation and about perseverance of the saints. Now, emphasis in many of these ministries is placed upon professions of faith, but not possession of faith. And the warning of the Scriptures here is to beware that we possess only a profession. A profession is not going to change the heart. A profession alone is not salvation. Salvation is to be a possessor of a working faith. Now, if you look at verse number 10 again, it says, For if these things be in you, if you own this, if this is yours, if you truly have it, then what happens? You will not be unfruitful. So how would some say that it's possible then to be eternally secure, but yet not necessary to persevere in the faith? So can you depart from the faith and be saved? Sadly enough, there are some who say yes. Isn't that odd that some people say that you could actually reject Jesus Christ after you're saved? Because of your eternal security, you can reject Him after you're saved. You can depart from the faith. You can do that and still be saved. 
That's not taught in Scripture. Not only is it not taught in Scripture, it's taught that it's impossible for it to happen. A person who is truly saved can never depart from the faith because he will persevere. The Holy Spirit is in him. And so we teach that a person must keep producing the works that show that his faith is real. Now listen to this uh, statement from our statement of faith based upon historic doctrine, the Baptist doctrine. We believe that such only are real believers as endure unto the end. Isn't that what Jesus said? We believe that such are only real believers as endure unto the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. That a special providence watches over their welfare and they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Now there's a great statement there. Their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. Now there you find assurance. Now you know that you are a true believer if you keep holding on to Christ. And who is it that's going to hold on to Christ who has no Christian graces? Who holds on to him and doesn't have any evidence that he ever was saved? Now, if you have a doctrine of carnal Christianity on one hand, you can't have perseverance on the other. That's impossible. They're two doctrines that can't go together. You have to get rid of one or the other. And so many of these people, because they are non-lordship, get rid of the doctrine of perseverance. I can't find... Well, I'll put it this way. It is unconscionable to me to think that somebody could look at all the places in the Scripture that teach that Christians must persevere in their faith, and then to have somebody turn around and say, it's not necessary. Is you don't really have to do that. We won't take that. We won't believe that. Whatever their motives are for it, it's unconscionable to me that someone say, I'm not going to believe that when it's right here in the Bible. We have the obligation. We must persevere in our faith. So I have to ask you, who are you going to believe on the subject? Are you going to believe what Paul said about it? Will you believe what John said about it? What James said about it? What Jesus said about it? Or are you going to believe what a preacher says about it because he has a vested interest in propping up his soul-winning numbers. So how then do you keep eternal security from being a doctrine that says that you can do anything that you want to do and still go to heaven when you die? How do you keep it from being that kind of a doctrine? What you do is you balance it out by perseverance. That true Christians must live godly lives, and godly living is required of us. Titus 2, Paul said, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And listen to verse 14. Who gave himself for us to do what? that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Well, how are you going to get those verses without perseverance? Christ gave himself to redeem us from iniquity. He gave himself to purify to himself a godly people, a holy people. He purified us to be a peculiar people. And the question we have to ask now is, did he fail? Did he fail in doing that? He he died to do this. Did he fail? And I am amazed to find that there are so many people that do believe that in some measure that Christ was a failure because he failed. He couldn't save all that he intended to save. He couldn't do it. 
So he failed at that. And then those that he intended to be holy, to be righteous, and to be drawn to him, and to be redeemed from all iniquity, he couldn't accomplish that in them either. And so we reject the atonement of Christ, his, his atonement for his people, and we also reject the perseverance of people who are to believe in Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves fighting against the Word of God when we do that. Now, adding Christian graces is important for perseverance. It's important for our assurance so that we stabilize the position that we have in Jesus Christ. They give us assurance because they actually are means of our salvation. The graces that he talks about here are means of our salvation as we go through our Christian life. God enacts them, then. God, God enacts them in us. He uses them as the means that we maintain our salvation. And so where there is no grace, there is no work. And where there is no work, the Holy Spirit is not there. Where the Holy Spirit does not work, there isn't any salvation. Well, that brings me to our final thoughts, that we need these graces, number five, for jubilation. Verse 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what is the master result of salvation in a person's life in consideration of personal benefit? Well, we would have to say that it is salvation from hell and also living in heaven. The benefit of eternal life in heaven. Well, how will or how should a Christian enter into heaven according to this verse? Well, it says he enters abundantly. He comes with a plethora of rewards. If the graces multiply in him, if they build and they grow, then he'll not come into heaven without fruit. He'll shine for Christ. He'll lay up treasures in heaven so that there is an abundant entrance as he goes there. Now let me give you another thought as we close this evening. There is an interesting twist that's put on these words by some commentators. One of them said, You may be able to enter not have, as having escaped from a shipwreck, or from a fire, but as it were, in triumph. I think that there are many Christians that are going to enter into heaven just barely crawling in. I mean, they, they don't really have any good works to bring with them, or not many good works, because they've squandered all of their opportunities to serve, to serve the Lord. They don't have very much to show for their Christian lives because they never really cared to get in to the Lord's work. What they've always done is to dabble in sin. They go back to the sins they've been saved from, and they just live in sin. And so they come into heaven stripped practically naked before they enter there. Now, if we were to put it in Job's terms, he said, My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. By the skin of the teeth, that's how they come. You know, you can't actually see the skin of your teeth, can you? What did he mean by that, the skin of the teeth? Well, what he means is just barely. Just barely there, as if you can't even find it, you can't even see it. And I think there are many Christians that are that way. You just can't find anything that would convince them or anyone else that they are actually saved. Oh, you're doubtful about your own salvation. You barely can find any evidence at all. Now, what we can't do, obviously, is we can't see into a person's heart. We can't do that. But we can see what the heart might look like. When Pastor Moango was here, he said that in Kenya, 
It's very difficult to ordain men to the ministry. The reason is because when they ordain someone, a government representative will come to the ordination service. And not only that, but also members of the community, people that aren't even members of the church, will come to the ordination services. And Brother Wilson said, we don't, we don't prohibit that. We don't try to keep those people out because they often have very good information about the people that they want to ordain. He said, you see, the people in Kenya don't really have anything to do. They don't have any television to watch. They don't have uh, smartphones to stay on all day. They don't have any computers to use. And so instead they turn into busybodies. They turn into people that watch other people. And so they watch the people in the community. And when it comes time to ordain these men into the ministry, there are people in the community that come in to tell what they know. They've been watching that person's life. They've, and that person has been very closely scrutinized. Now, I would suspect that many of us, if we had someone following us around all of the time, watching what we do and recording what we do, that oftentimes they would come to a conclusion, we're not really Christians. We can't be Christians and do the things that we do. Go the places that we go, have friends with the people that we're friends with. I would say, drink the things we drink, smoke the things we smoke. All of those kinds of things. We couldn't possibly be Christians if we got followed around all the time and somebody wrote down what we do. But what does our text say? A godly life is expected. We are expected to enter heaven abundantly. We are expected to enter heaven with fruit, much fruit to our credit. That was Albert Barnes said, if they would look on the virtues and the graces referred to in their beautiful order, those graces would attend them in a radiant train to the mansions of immortal glory and blessedness. What he's speaking of there is jubilation. He's talking about a triumphant entrance like a general who has, who has been uh, captured and enslaved sin and seized the spoils of war. And that is much, much better than whimpering into heaven. And so here we have these reasons to be diligent to add Christian graces. They are for your sanctification. It's so you can enter into heaven as a Christian who looks like Christ. Now God requires sanctification because without it, he says, you will not see God. Isn't that what he said? Be ye holy as I am holy. And he said, you've got to be holy in order to see God without which no man shall see God. What's holy? That's sanctification. That's what he's talking about. How will we enter heaven? You know, you need to look at your life. You need to examine yourself, as we talked about this morning. What is in your life when you look? What do you find there when you look? How have you grown? Has there been any change? Are you different as a believer in Christ than you were when you first believed? And if there is no difference then you are a baby with a very serious spiritual problem. This is what Peter warns us about here. Add these things, put these graces into your life, and you will grow as a Christian, and thereby you have proof, you have all the evidence that you need that you truly are a child of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that we learn here. Sometimes it's difficult to get these across and to get into our understanding how we can um, deal with the paradoxes of things like 
making election sure when you did that before the foundation of the world, dealing with things like we are not saved by our works, and then yet seeing that you use our works as a means to guarantee salvation, to make us sure that we are truly saved. Sometimes it's very difficult for us to get into our minds those paradoxes. But they're there, and the Bible teaches them. We can't ignore them. We can't say, oh, because I don't understand it all, I'm going to reject it. Now we must take it because the Word of God says so. Lord, help us to understand this very clearly, that there is this requirement of lordship salvation. There's a requirement of receiving you as Lord of our lives. And if that has not happened, if we don't do that, if there is no evidence of salvation, then we need to beg for the mercy and grace of God. Lord, help us today to see the truths of your word. Help us to be better people, better Christians as we serve you every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.